Hello, this is Pastor Jordan Rimmer. Thank you for listening to my sermons. If you are a normal sermon listener, you're going to find this particular uh, podcast to be very different. It is really not for uh, everyone who listens, but for a specific group of us. Uh, it is an interview with Dr. Andrew Purvis, who was one of my professors in seminary. There are a group of students and alumni and uh, um, other pastors that are reading the works of T.F. Torrance this year. And so I did this as a uh, kind of a kickoff to that reading and to give some guidance to who Torrance was and how to read him. Um, you may or may not find this interesting if you're one of my normal sermon listeners, but I hope that there is some benefit for you all, especially to those who will be doing the reading. Uh, so this, this was recorded uh, in uh, Dr. Purvis's living room on the morning of January 17th, uh, 2014. And uh, hopefully we'll have a couple of follow-ups with him as we go throughout our reading of T.F. Torrance this year. If you have any questions, you can always find me on Facebook, uh, look me up on Twitter, you can... Uh, make comments on the sermon page, and also uh, shoot me an email um, at jrimmer at pts.edu. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the sermon and for listening to the interview, and I hope that God blesses you. I guess let's just start out, for those who have not read as much, with um, talk a little bit about who T.F. Torrance was, what he was like. Um... He was born in China, his first 12 years of his life, lived in China, son of missionary parents, <clears throat> um, came back to, came uh, to Scotland when he was 12 and educated in the west of Scotland and he went up to Edinburgh University, studied philosophy <clears throat> in Edinburgh, then went up to New College, which is the Faculty of Divinity, where he studied under the man who was the biggest and life long influence on his life, although it's not known much that this is the case, uh, Hugh Ross Mackintosh. Uh, Mackintosh died at the end of Tom's second year um, as a student there, but uh, throughout his life, Mackintosh was actually more important for him than Bart. Um, at the end of his uh, studies in Edinburgh, um, he was asked to be a guest professor. Now this is a guy 24 years old, um, no, no graduate studies, asked to be guest professor of theology at Auburn Seminary, as when it was a seminary in New York, and he went there for a year. And his lectures from Auburn have recently been published you know, 10, 12 years ago, uh, The Doctrine of Jesus Christ. Extraordinary for a man in his mid-twenties, just extraordinary. Um, at the end of that year, he was invited onto the faculty Again, no PhD at this point, of uh, Princeton University and McCormick Seminary. But it was Emil Brunner who talked him out of that and to go back and continue his studies. So he went to Basel, began work with Karl Barth on uh, working on patristics. And then um, in the midst, uh, before he finished that, he came back to Scotland and took a parish um, in the middle of Scotland, a little place called Aylith. And he was there. Uh, in the middle of his ministry there, he went 
to uh, do military work in the war. He was involved, he was a kind of chaplain type person. He was involved in uh, uh, the Allied assault on Italy and saw action at first hand. Um, the famous Private Phillips story that all Torrance types know uh, comes from that period where he held in the crook of his arm a dying young Scottish soldier, Private Phillips, and the young man asked, this was in the morning of a, after a battle through the night, if God was like Jesus, and Tom said, when, I, when you look into the face of Jesus, you're looking into the face of God, and the man died in his arms. Uh, then after the war, back to Aleph, completed his work with Bart, and then took another parish, Beach Grove in Aberdeen, where his predecessor had been uh, J.S. Stewart, who was a very famous New Testament scholar, and J.S. Stewart's predecessor had been H.R. McIntosh. So McIntosh, Stewart, and Torrance, three ministers in a row, just uh, extraordinary. Um, he was very busy in the late 40s as a parish minister, involved in all kinds of setting up ecumenical dialogues, one thing or another. Then 1950, he was called to Edinburgh University to be professor of church history, because that was his speciality. And after two years, he was appointed to the, a new chair, in, uh, which was the continuation of Macintosh's chair in uh, Christian dogmatics. And that's where he was until his retirement. And that's where you had him in class? That's where both my wife, Kathy, and I had him in class. Uh, we were his students in the early 70s, and the prime of his powers. Um, we, we called him TF, uh, as opposed to his brother JB, um, so TF, um, he was high energy, uh, could be arrogant, encyclopedic, could be very aggressive. If you were one of his people, uh, he was gracious and delightful and helped you to the ends of the earth, but if you attacked him, he would demolish you. Um, he was the most intimidating human being I've ever been in the company of. Um, and it took me until halfway through my academic career before I had the courage to call him Tom. And, uh, and then eventually uh, I was on first name terms with him. I should maybe tell the story of the last time I saw him. It gives you an indication, something of the man. Uh, I was in Edinburgh. This is 12 years ago now, and he was in his uh, mid to late 80s at this point. And I called him up, and he said, come round the next morning, 10 o'clock, and walked, got over to his house in Edinburgh, and his wife, Margaret, let me in and said, Tom's upstairs in his study, just go up. And I went up the stair of his house, the door was ajar, and I went to knock on the door, and he, he obviously heard me coming, and he opened the door. And it instantly struck, he was dressed in a suit, formally dressed, and he shook my hand and said, Andrew, how lovely to see you again. I pray for you every day. Just, wow. Come in, come in. We had this huge study. He said, sit in this chair, sit in this chair. Carl Barth sat in that chair. Oh, wow, goodness. Um, so we chatted, had some coffee and chatted away. And um, then he said, come on, we'll go for lunch. So we walked along to the Brunsfield Hotel, uh, the end of his street. And Carl Barth stayed in this hotel. And uh, I remember I had a chicken sandwich and a glass of wine. And at the end of lunch, he 
got up to the bar to pay and he had this huge wad of British pound notes and he dropped them on the floor and I never forget Tom rummaging around on his knees on the floor picking up pound notes in the bar. Then we went back to his house, it was a rainy day, recall, and um, back to his study. And then uh, around three o'clock I had to go and meet a group, um, so I said I had to go. And so he then said, well, what of my books don't you have? And I said, well, I don't have your book on patristic hermeneutics, a huge thing, very expensive. So he pulled it off the shelf and signed it for me and he said, do you have my father's book on China missions? Well, of course I don't, you know. So he pulled that off the shelf and signed it. And then he took me by the arm around the back of the stack of books, huge, I never saw as many books in anybody's house in my life. And, um, and there was a little prayer desk and he had me kneel, put his hands on me and, and pray for me and blessed me. dedicated one of my books to him, that was a great thrill, and um, he wrote a blurb for the book, and that meant a lot. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm, uh, I'm one of the Torms guys. There's, a, there's an international fraternity of Torms guys. Um, there's also Participatio, you probably know, the online journal. I'm on the editorial board of that. and. There's a volume called Evangelical Calvinism, came out last year, edited by a New Zealand theologian that's all the Torrance people, and I have a chapter in that, Part T has a chapter in that, and um, volume two of Evangelical Calvinism is now being put together, and uh, again, it's just international collection of Torrance groupies, uh, and I'm part of that too. So there is a kind of an in-house, international, ecumenical, um, Torns group, um, and there's a Torns group at the American Academy of Religion that I've spoken to as well. Uh, so I have an article on Torns coming out, uh, just came out in the online journal, um, came out a month ago, uh, I can't remember what it's on, but it's on Torns. Um, I mean, I wrote the thing about five years ago, this, things take a long time to get into press. Um, and the book that I've just finished, that um, will be over a year before it's out, published by IDP, is partly, it's on Torn's Macintosh and Cloud Campbell on Christology and Atonement, so that continues that conversation. Um, well, maybe another question. Well, I'm just rambling here. Talk about, can you talk about some of his major thoughts? Okay. I mean, one of the things I'm amazed is the, the width of material that he's written yeah, about. Yeah. Um, he's a patristic scholar. He's a Calvin scholar. He is a Bart scholar. He is a scholar in the dialogue between the philosophy of theology and mid-20th century philosophy of science. Um, but I would say if, if, if one were to characterize the centrality of Torrance, it would be Christology and Trinity. And the Christology, especially of the hypostatic union. I think Torrance is the great theologian of the hypostatic union, maybe more than anybody else in modern theology. <clears throat> he has developed the theology of the hypostatic union um, and the theology of father-son relations. So father-son relations, that, that relation, and then the hypostatic relation of the holy human, holy God. And he works out the atonement in terms of hypostatic union and father-son relations. 
rather than in terms of the Western order of salutis, the order of salvation, um, that begins with law. Atonement begins with father-son relations. So atonement's worked through essentially in personal and relational terms, the end of which is communion rather than just forgiveness. So it's a much larger... And, and a lot of this comes from Athanasius. Um, Athanasius is arguably his favorite theologian. Um, uh, Hilary of Poitiers, Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus. He's not an Augustine fan. He's a Calvin guy. He's a Bart guy. And the Scottish tradition, um, as I've read Torrance more and more through the years, I've come to realize the Scottish tradition uh, uh, from Knox um, that gets sideswiped by the heresy of Westminster Calvinism. You can put that online if you like. And um, that resurfaces with Thomas Erskine, John McLeod Campbell in the 1830s, picked up by William Milligan in the 1870s, then uh, Macintosh in the first third of the 20th century, then carried on by Torrance, and then people like me and others coming afterwards. Um, there's a great tradition, uh, ecumenical tradition, that really is Irenaeus, Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, Calvin read through a 4th century lens rather than a 17th century lens. There's great ecumenical, historic, broad trajectory of theology focused on father-son relations and uh, the hypostatic union. The other thing that I would say would characterize his theology, something I've picked up on in a an American theologian called um, Chris Kettler, who teaches at Friends University in Wichita, has done work on, is the vicarious humanity of Christ. Hugely important for, for Tom Torrance. Um, uh, he developed the vicarious humanity, I think, more than Bart did, uh, arguably. But these would be the, the major themes. Um, the interesting lacuna in his thought, he's so radical and so... Uh, relationally centered in his theology, yet his politics was to the right of a killer the Hun. His brother James was a labor man, but Torrance was a right-wing Thatcherite. And they used to have fierce rows, Tom and the two brothers, fierce rows over politics. So go figure. One of the things in reading Torrance as much as I have so far uh, that I find interesting is Many people want to think about atonement really as the cross. Right. As a, and it, it kind of overshadowed by the idea of a penal substitutionary atonement. Right. Whereas I have really appreciated Torrance expanding that to say, no, it's the life of right, Christ right. from the incarnation to right. the ascension. Well, from then the, even back to back, the yeah. doctrine of election, uh, electing Jesus Christ from the foundation of the world. Um, that as Torrance following Knox and following uh, Bart, but it goes back to Knox certainly, um, saw election in terms of Jesus Christ um, and the, the whole created order is electing Christ um, and so the atonement in fact begins with election, the, the atonement begins with the conception of Jesus the atonement begins with the birth of Jesus the atonement begins with the life of Jesus. You know, it's it's, and the cross certainly. Torrance's uh, work on justification does include a penal uh, uh, theology, uh, not harsh, not 
aggressive, but it's 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 undoubtedly there's a penal, a forensic dimension, and biblically it'd be hard to avoid that. Mm -hmm. But the Western tradition took that penal theology of the the, the forensic penal uh, scholastic courtroom uh, metaphor and made that the dominant metaphor and. Any other approach to the atonement was subsumed under that. Um, but Torrance has a much broader, multi-layered view of atonement that, for example, one of Torrance's big doctrines is the priesthood of Christ. Uh, from he, he gets this a lot from McLeod Campbell um, and the theology of the letter to the Hebrews. Now, the, 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 the atonement in Hebrews is different from justification in Paul just different streams of thought. So if you look at the atonement through the priesthood of Christ in vicarious humanity, uh, Torrance works that out very fully. He works out justification in Paul very fully, but he also works out issues like ransom and um, reconciliation, which is a much more relational term than justification. So, uh, and then redemption, which is an eschatological construct. So Torrance's view of the atonement is is big picture um, and the active obedience of Christ in his life is arguably for Tom Torrance more important than the passive obedience of Christ in his death and nowhere anywhere in Tom Torrance's writing nowhere does he say that the death of the son appeases the wrath of the father he regards that as a non-biblical doctrine um, it is not God who needs to be uh, accommodated in atonement. It is we who need to be... God doesn't need to be reconciled to us. It is we who must be reconciled to God. And so there is no theology in Tom Torrens of the Father punishing the Son, none whatsoever. And yet, think of our hymns, our Good Friday hymns, that's full of this penal punishing stuff. Um, so Tom, even in the, when he's talking about penal atonement, um, it's a lighter touch and it's not, it's not a punishment theology. The person who is most vigorously against punishment theology, and you'll all come to this later, of course, is John McLeod Campbell, who is so reactive to this that maybe he loses the cross to some extent. But that's another conversation for later. One of the challenges, I think, in reading Torrance on Atonement is he really calls for Christ being the perfect sacrifice and a universal atonement. But yet he won't go so far as maybe you could argue Bart did to be a universalist. He, right. he wanted to hold back to say, right. though the sacrifice is, is complete, it's right. not. <laughs> That's it's right. not effective for necessarily everyone. Or well, how does he work that out? Uh, You've had me read some stuff on this, yes, and Tom, I've always wrestled. With he, he he works that out by refusing to work it out. <clears throat> uh, Bart used to say when he was asked, "Was he a universalist?" Bart used to say, "Well, that's just a big word." Um, Torrance works it out this way: that the whole of the created order has been recapitulated in the birth, life, death resurrection, ascension of the second Adam, uh, in which the love of God is manifest and laid hold of the whole creation, so that the whole creation is now re-established in Christ. 
Torrance, remember, <coughs> is the son of a missionary family, and he always thought of himself as a missionary, <coughs> in a sense of a, a missionary to the academic culture, the theological culture. <coughs> and um, so Torrance remained convicted that while Christ had made in his vicarious humanity the response on our behalf, we by the Spirit were led to say an Amen to his prior Amen on our behalf. And that's why you preach the Gospel. <clears throat> Not that people may be saved, they're already saved, but that they may accept their salvation and live in terms of it. And Tom thought there was the direst consequence for those who rejected the truth of their life in Christ. <clears throat> and so he, he did talk of people damning themselves um, by refusing to be who they are in Christ, by rejecting God's love. <clears throat> when pushed that the logic of his theology demanded he be a universalist, he would often laugh and tell us, well, you're demanding that I push the logic of an argument in terms of Aristotelian logic, pushing propositions to their logical conclusion. And he used to remind us that Aristotle was... Gregory of Nazianzus thought of Aristotle as the bishop of heretics. And Tom just refused to... He said, we're dealing with essential mystery here. Um, <clears throat> it is clear what is necessary for salvation, and it is clear what the church must teach and preach. Um, <clears throat> it is not given for us to understand the mystery of, of who is saved or not. Those who accept Jesus Christ and acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior for all of our faults and failings, we have the assurance of salvation. Um, others uh, do not uh, because they reject it. And <clears throat> if the logic of Tom's theology leads to universalism, he just refuses to be Aristotelian at that point, and he just stops talking and said, we are confronted with an, an awful and terrible mystery. But I remember him saying one time, he was absolutely convinced Adolf Hitler was in hell. <coughs> um, maybe so. Um, yet, you know, Peter tells us we are to have a good hope for all. Um, I refuse to speculate on this. I just, as it were, hit a wall and say, I don't know, but my job is to bear witness to Jesus Christ as Lord, and this is God's issue, and uh, I don't know what's in anybody's heart. I know my own heart is not terrific much of the time, so who am I to judge? Um, in fact, Pope Francis has been saying much the same as, as well. Um, so Torrance is not a universalist, uh, but he's not a universalist because he, he refuses to be an Aristotelian, and a, a scholastic, and using human reason uh, to push the argument to its logical conclusion. For him, the gospel is not a logical conclusion. It's the, the mystery of God unveiled in Jesus Christ. And it's not to be reduced to or accommodated to human logic. I don't know if that works, but that's how he sees it. What tips do you have for reading Torrance? There's some of us who have wrestled with long paragraphs <coughs> and seemingly yeah. made up words, but okay. some maybe haven't. Tom has his own language, <coughs> and you've just got to be patient and get inside the language. 
you're beginning with reality and evangelical theology, that's as good a place as any to start. <coughs> uh, another good place to start is the mediation of Christ. But there's no easy place to start. You're just going to jump in and, and deal with it. Um, he has his own language, but once you read him a bit, you'll discover that he is stunningly repetitive. And if you miss it the first time, or the second time, or the third time, he'll come back and say it again. So, he's like Bart. He goes round and round and round, and you'll find gradually, um, you'll pick up pet phrases, pet images of his, mannerisms of speech. <coughs> Read him slowly. Um, uh, the, the, a problem with Torrance, and it's the same with Bart, is that he doesn't illustrate. He just pounds away, and so it can get very dense and very heavy. And the way that you've broken it up here, Jordan, is excellent. It's, you know, small bites, so you don't, you don't burn out with him. <coughs> um, you've just got to take him slowly, um, allow him his own pace. Uh, you can't rush him. Uh, but after a while, I mean, I'm saying this after 40 years of reading him for 40 years, and writing about him uh, for a long time and teaching classes on him. Um, and yet, you know, every time I reread Tom Torrance, it's as if I've never read the book before. Um, uh, I've discovered <coughs> um, two things in the last, since I've been writing this, this new book on, on Torrance. I've discovered two images or phrases that he uses that I've never picked up before. One is the phrase, he keeps talking about essential mystery. The mysterium of the God, it's, it's, essential, it, it's nature is mystery. So we can't expect to understand it. At least understand it all. So essential mystery, I, I've come to realize, was a, is a bigger epistemological category than I'd seen before. The other is a phrase that Paul uses at the very beginning and the very end of Romans. I mean, talking about Romans 1, 3, or 4, and the very la second last sentence in Romans. So obviously we've got a bookend here where Paul talks about the obedience of faith. And I think Torns is a... Th and I, I found, now that I recognize that phrase, he keeps using it. I just always moved on fast. <coughs> he, doesn't, he, he, he usually doesn't reference it as from Paul... <clears throat> but it's a key phrase that theology is an obedient activity. It's following Karl Barth. Um, Barth used to say that theology was a bounded science. It's not, <clears throat> it's not free range. You can't just go and speculate and think whatever you want. We're constrained by the reality that confronts us on its own terms, and we can't go wandering into dilettante speculations like much modern liberal theology would. Or I think even scholastic reform theology does by imposing a mm. rationalistic structure upon it. Um, uh, <clears throat> you're going to be reading reality and evangelical theology and Tom in that book is very harsh in his criticism of this cast iron rationalism that the conservatives impose upon scripture and, and warp it, fitting it into human logic and human reason. But I think, I think that's the book we're reading now. I think Torrance there has a lot to say to 
he's saying what a lot of postmoderns are saying now. Post foundationalist. Yes, yes, I mean, right. um, I mean, in the 50s, he was a post foundationalist without knowing it, as was Barth. <clears throat> or it, it goes for this critical realism, um, in much the same thing, where we, we never, there was always a gap between the reality as it confronts us and our expression of it, our knowing. We can never absolutely know. And so, all knowledge is in process and open-ended um, <clears throat> and is not accommodatable to any independent criterion of truth outside of itself. Certainly, you know, if I'm studying toadstools, say, um, I can't bring the, the skills of how to interpret a Michelangelo painting to the interpretation of Toadstools, it's just category mistake. So we interpret toadstools as toadstools give themselves to be interpreted. And aesthetics, develop, we develop a, a, a critical understanding of, of fine art. Similarly with God, we've got to know God in terms of God. So we're bounded by the way God gives himself to be known. But on the other hand, <clears throat> that, is, that is kinetic and open-ended because we can never get our, our minds around the subject matter. So Torrance used to say we have to repent of our theology, always repenting our theology, because God is not a sentence. <clears throat> Did Torrance ever lay out his own theology of Scripture? Uh, I think based on what you're saying, really relate, you know, has implications <coughs> for how you view Scripture. Um, yes, um, but not in a formal book. Uh, Reality in Evangelical Theology is a book about Scripture. Uh, questions put to biblical theologians, one of the chapters. Um, he didn't um, formally lay out a, a system, but it's laced throughout mm -hmm. um, the, all of his work. Um, uh, he, he, he aggressively thought of himself as a biblical theologian. Um, I found in my writing on him, um, I coined a new term. Um, I called Torrance a Kittle theologian. Uh, he's very big on word studies, Kittle word studies. Um, and James Barr has been very critical of Torrance in that regard because he's, he's just big on word studies and then builds up the theology from word studies but then gets to the theological conclusion and then brings the theology back around to sort of open up the word study again um, as more than the Kittle word study could be. So it's a constant dialectic. Um, Torrance for Torrance there was no biblical theology but there were biblical theologies and trajectories out of scripture um, that are never neatly tied up with a ribbon on the box um, because God cannot be tied up with a ribbon on the box so even scripture itself um, is open ended and uh, to be treated, uh, well, let me put it this way. If I could put in one sentence Torrance's theology of Scripture, it would be, the authority of Scripture is the wrong concept. There is no authority in Scripture, because Scripture does not have intrinsic authority. The authority is the, is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And Scripture is that by the Spirit of Christ which is given to the church that we that bears witness to Jesus Christ. So Scripture has to be understood out of a center in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. not the other way around. And so so because the gospel is about us about a person, God as personal being given for us in Jesus Christ, not about a series of arguments and sentences and the, and so deductive logic is just the wrong apparatus to apply to scripture. Rather we we have to he used to tell us again and again, don't think scripture, think God by going through scripture. Go through scripture and beyond scripture but not away from scripture. Go right through scripture. Not to apprehend scripture, but to apprehend the living God to which scripture points. So Tom was a thoroughgoingly aggressive biblical theologian, but the issue was not the Bible, the issue was God. But the scripture was that which was given. Um, a very high view of apostolicity, that Christ is the apostle who commissions the twelve, and out of that tradition comes the scriptures, as a second order apostolicity. So for Torrance, the scripture is, is a second order apostolicity. And then through the laying on of hands, the third order apostolicity is the ministry of word and sacraments. The authority of which we, we've lost the doctrine of apostolicity today in the church. That's another topic. But so Tom understood scripture as a second order apostolicity uh, under the primary apostolicity of Christ, the high priest of our confession from, from Hebrews. So it, it, it's not that he disagrees with those who are concerned about the authority of Scripture. He just takes a whole, he just uses a whole different language system, mm-hmm. a whole different frame of reference. And the the scholastic evangelicals used to get very nervous about Torrance. And in the United States, Van Til and Carl Henry, others from that tradition, have all been very critical of Torrance and Bart for the same reason that Scripture, is, as, as that vehicle that bears witness, to something that the scripture is not. Uh, and Torrance's refusal to be deductive in his interpretation of scripture um, makes a lot of people very nervous. Yeah, but it sounds more, a lot like uh, John Webster. Well, Webster would be the, kind of a, he's part of this next generation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I don't, I mean, Webster's language is different than Torrance's, but, but Webster's a Torrance guy. Um, as you look at the reading list that we have, thoughts on what we can expect yeah, as we go yeah, through this? Yeah, um, I, I, I was saying to Jordan before we put this thing on tape, um, you're going to be reading McLeod Campbell. Uh, we will need to have a conversation or two before you read McLeod Campbell, because John McLeod Campbell, Nature of the Atonement, is maybe the most difficult book in English I have ever read, and I've read it. I don't know, six, eight times. Just in the book I've just finished, a third of the book is on McLeod Campbell. And after 40 years, I think I've got McLeod Campbell, but it's taken me 40 years. Um, And it's not that the theology is so difficult. Um, Once you realize there's an architectonic in the book, there's actually a structure in the book. Oh, that's what he's doing. But it's almost as if somebody has to show you because it's hidden. The other thing is, his writing is a form of English unknown to anybody else. Um, it's it's a, an extraordinarily clunky, cumbersome, difficult write English style that um, is very difficult to read. It is one of 
I would regard the nature of the atonement as one of the five most brilliant books in theology of the atonement history of the church. Whether you agree with McLeod Campbell's conclusions or not, his theological intuition is simply breathtaking. Because this book grew out of nothing, just grew out of his thinking. And it grew out of his pastorate. It grew out of pastoral concern that people were not convicted of uh, not convicted with assurance of their salvation. That's the issue. And um, it's a theology of the love of God. It's a magnificent theological vision. Um, the Trinitarian faith by T.F. is uh, some think one of his very best books. He thought it was one of it was one of his, his two or three best books. Um, and I think that's true. The two huge books, Incarnation and Atonement, um, uh, they're, what can I say, they're just huge. And um, it's a labor to get through them. You, um, it's not exactly fun laboring through them. But these are the Christology and Soteriology lectures of the second year dogmatics course in New College that both my wife and I took. We, I have the original monographs of the handouts in my office at the seminary of the, what are now these two books in long full-scale pages with typos and uh, edited, been edited by Jamie Walker, Tom's nephew. Um, and uh, they're just long and they're just hard. And, um, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe at some point um, this whole group comes up to Pittsburgh and I can sit with you all for a day and I can pick some of it apart for you if you're just getting lost. Be happy to do that because I've been, I've been working at it long enough that I do think I have some sense of being able to have a bird's eye view of how the whole thing fits together. Um, but the, the publication of Incarnation and Atonement um, is, is a huge service to Torn's studies. <clears throat> and it's the nearest we have. Uh, the Trinitarian faith in its own way is a, is a systematic, um, but Incarnation and Atonement is, <clears throat> is the full exposition um, of Christology and Soteriology. Why he never wrote a multi-volume systematic, who knows? It was always being planned, but somehow he never got around to it. <clears throat> um, the only critique I would have of this reading plan is that maybe the mediation of Christ would have been a, a good place to get in. <clears throat> um, there's little here uh, as yet, and this may be for another round, there's little here on his epistemology. <clears throat> his mid-career work was largely dominated by epistemology. <clears throat> um, and his dialogue with uh, with the you know, 1950s, 1960s, post-Einsteinian philosophy of science. He was anti-positivist, um, and uh, <clears throat> a lot of uh, um, scholastic theology is, in fact, positivist, and a lot of mid-century liberal theology is anti-positivist, but wrong-headedly anti-positivist. <clears throat> um, and Torrance was trying to find, as with Barth, another way some of us call it a third way, and um, dominated by Christology and Trinity, <clears throat> but that, that had epistemological, non-foundationalist structures. And, you know, Tom's been dead since five years, and uh, <clears throat> we're, um, 
many, I mean, I'm coming to the end of my working life, but we're, uh, we're still just in the throes, early throes of putting together the language and the thought, the conceptuality for this third way where, but, I mean, it, this, this international conversation where, it's, where it's, it's moving forward, but it's, it's slow, it's hard, um, because we, you know, the, the, the Western tradition, arguably since Augustine, through the medievals to some extent, and scholastics, um, uh, through Anselm, uh, Aquinas, um, 17th century, uh, then the Enlightenment and reactions. I mean, this is, this is all this baggage that we're trying to get rid of. And it's in the DNA, the air we breathe, the water we drink, and it, it's so hard to get out from under this, but <clears throat> it's moving forward. And it's exciting. <coughs> I should uh, mark on one thing. Um, Torrance is read more since his death, I think, than when he was alive. Um, and the interest in Torrance studies is ecumenical and worldwide, but alas, not in Scotland. Hmm. Um, Torrance is largely not noted in Scotland. And I would guess most of the people doing PhDs with Webster or David Ferguson in Edinburgh or Alan Torrance in St. Andrews uh, who are working on Torrance studies are not British. I think most of them probably be United States <coughs> American students which is kind of strange. Where else do you see Torrance's work kind of moving? I mean you you did a lot of work <coughs> with his expressing it as pastoral theology. theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know Alistair McGrath has taken a lot of his stuff, mm -hmm. early stuff with the science, mm -hmm. relationship with mm -hmm. science, and has tried to continue mm -hmm. that. Right. Where else is, where else do you see Torrance's trajectory moving in the future? <clears throat> That's a good question. Um, not sure I know the answer to that. Uh, the, the Torrance journal, Participatio, is largely given over to exegesis. It, we're, we're still trying to understand the man. Um, yeah, m my work tried to push further than Tom went in pastoral theology. Um, the theology and science conversation has gone past him um, because quantum physics has gone past him. Mm -hmm. uh, he was writing in the early days of quantum physics. And Tom wasn't a physicist. He would have known an equation from a hole in the wall. <coughs> and I think the uh, theology-science conversation has just gone to a different place. Um, I think uh, the energy in torn studies is not so much around epistemology right now as around Christology and Trinity. Um, as far as I see, that's where a lot of work is being done. Um, I, I certainly, as I've moved from pastoral theology to to, to torn studies, more or less, um, the, the book I have coming out is Christology and Soteriology, and uh, not a lot has been done on his Soteriology. Mm -hmm. um, I hope I've made some small contributions when that book comes out. Um, it might be that somebody, and I know Webster's writing a five-volume systematic, and this may be the first 
Horn's trajectory, systematic, pulling things together more. Um, it, I haven't read Kelsey's Anthropology, um, and I don't know to what extent Horn's is a conversation partner there, but um, uh, there is not much development of anthropology in Torrance studies at the moment, I think. Um, <coughs> Torrance's work in the 50s, um, I think the work we did in class on conflict and agreement in the mm -hmm. church, on church and ministry and ordination, apostolicity, that work needs to be recovered. Mm -hmm. I think that is tremendously important. The, the nature of authority and apostolicity in the church, is, I think his work in the 50s on that is hugely important and it's largely been ignored. Um, I think that could, that, that may be something I could think about working on, it would be interesting. Um, that's as much as I can think of at the moment. Um, this work on evangelical Calvinism under a guy called Mike Habits, M-Y-K-H-A-B-E-T-S, who's a New Zealand theologian, um, that seems to be one one big thrust of torn studies and um, the book that's out is huge and the book that's being projected <coughs> um, Partee has a chapter coming and I have a chapter coming um, it's huge, it's, it's going to be about 600 pages um, but kind of a who's who writing in it so <coughs> inching forward but quite where it's all going but Mike Havis is trying to start a movement whether he'll succeed or not, maybe. He has a tremendous amount of energy, so he might. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Words good, good wishes. Um, I mean, Tom Torrance, um, to my mind, is undoubtedly the church father of the Western church from the second half of the 20th century. He is the greatest English-speaking theologian of his age, um, he is a theologian for the ages. We will be reading Tom Torns long after people can't spell Paul Tillich. Um, <clears throat> my wife is reading some Maltman just now and was just saying how dated Maltman seems. And yet you read Torns from the 50s and it's like, it just jumps off the page as, wow, this is important for us today. Um, Maltman from the 70s seems out of date, while mm -hmm. Torns from the 50s seems... <coughs> seems seems uh, uh, important. Um, be patient with yourselves as you read this stuff. If you haven't read him before, don't force it. Just be patient. Be tolerant of him. Um, he's not easy. And uh, I will help any way I can uh, as time goes along. Okay. Um, I thought to end, what did you do at the end of class, but I always appreciate it was a blessing. Okay. Wondering if you'd be willing to do Be happy to a blessing. And to God's mercy we commend you. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, each one, this day and unto ages of ages. <laughs>